Well, good morning. It's good to be with you, good to be worshiping with you, and uh, hopefully you've had an enjoyable 4th of July weekend so far. Um, amazing weather. Wondered whether or not we'd ever see uh, two consecutive days without rain and sun, but uh, we did have that. What a blessing. And uh, hopefully you had a chance to maybe enjoy some fireworks. And uh, I haven't heard that anybody lost any fingers or anything blowing off fireworks, and so that's a good thing. But, you know, even though we as a country have the opportunity to celebrate our freedom as a country, what is even more important, what is even more significant, is the freedom that we enjoy and have in the person of Jesus Christ. And that is something to celebrate, not just one day a year, but every single day of the year, 365 days. Well, this morning, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 18. And if you don't have a Bible, raise your hands and uh, one of our ushers will loan you one. Luke chapter 18. In Luke chapter 18, we're going to be looking at verses 9 to 14. Jesus tells a story of a Pharisee and a tax collector. And what is remarkable about this parable, this story, and these two individuals is that both the Pharisee and this tax collector that are listed in this story were both sincere, both were devout in their own unique ways. You know, we have been preconditioned to think a certain way about the Pharisees in Jesus' day because of what we know of the Pharisees. But if you stood among the crowd that ancient morning when Jesus told this story of the Pharisee and this tax collector, in the eyes of all the good and decent people, they would have seen this Pharisee as a good, decent, moral individual. Really a religious success. Just a very good person. And the same people would have seen the tax collector as a thief, a villain, robber, and just a very despicable individual, one to not ever be associated with. Now, if both of these men, this Pharisee and the tax collector, um, were candidates for the Citizen of the Year Award, um, the Pharisee would have won hands down. If both of these men were running for public office in Jerusalem, that you would have, I think, done everything possible to get the Pharisee elected. And this is if you were there that day. But if the tax collector, if the tax collector had won the election, you would have probably said that the election was rigged or it's an indication of the moral corruption in politics and society. If the Pharisee had moved in next door to you, you would have felt privileged to have him as your neighbor. If it had been the tax collector, you would have probably thought about selling your house because you would have said that the neighborhood was going down the tubes. If the Pharisee had asked for your daughter's hand in marriage, you would have been thrilled. If it had been the tax collector, not so thrilled. You see, with these two men, this Pharisee and this tax collector, Jesus draws a rather unexpected conclusion for those who were listening that very day, that ancient morning some 2,000 years ago. One of these men looked very good on the outside. The other doesn't. One seems to be in touch with God, and the other does not seem to be in touch with God. And what we will see in this story in Luke chapter 18 is the true character of each one of these individuals, which becomes very obvious as they come to the temple to pray. 
And as they come to the temple to pray, their genuine heart attitude is revealed because of what they were praying about and what they were praying for. And we will see that God rejects one man and his prayer, and he accepts the other, which is not what the audience that day expected to hear. And so let's begin by looking first at the attitude of heart that God rejects, and that's pride. Now, the context of this story that Jesus tells, as I said, is found in Luke chapter 18. And the story that we're about to to look at, the parable that we're about to hear from Jesus, is not so much a parable or story about prayer as it is a story about heart attitude and the kind of attitude that God either accepts or rejects. And what Jesus does, because if you look to the verses just preceding this, in, in, uh, in Luke 18, 1 through um, verse 8, Jesus tells a, a story about prayer and how prayer should be engaged in. And so what he then does is he spins off of that and uses prayer as an example for a significant point that he wants to make to the audience there that day. And so we're going to look at the attitude of heart that God rejects, and that's pride in verses 9 through 12. Look at Luke 18, verse 9. He, that is Jesus, told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. Well, Jesus directs this parable to people who are characterized by two qualities. Those who are confident or proud of their own righteousness, of their own good deeds, of their own spirituality. And these are people who believe that they, they have a right standing before God and are accepted by him because of their good deeds and their spiritual activity. They are trusting in themselves, their abilities, as they look at their accomplishments, their achievements, rather than trusting in God for anything. They're really saying that I have attained a level of religious superiority by what I have done, by how I have disciplined myself. And then he's talking to those that looked down on others with contempt or disdain for others and and felt superior to them. Pride of self and contempt for others really go hand in hand. They're really companions. So how do we know whether or not we are being addressed in this parable? How do we know? How do I know? How do you know whether or not you are being addressed in this parable? Well, a couple of things, a couple of questions. Do you ever look at people who don't go to church or don't go to church regularly and think that, you know, I'm better than they are because I go to church every single Sunday and even during the week? Do you ever look at people who are divorced and think that you are better than they are because you're not divorced? Uh, Do you ever think that because you've never committed a crime, done drugs, that you're better than someone that has? Do you ever think because you might have more Bible verses underlined in your Bible that you might be more committed to your Bible than someone who has fewer verses underlined? Or maybe because you serve every single week in the nursery and you allow little kids to spit up all over you and you have to change dirty diapers and you compare yourself to the person who serves coffee once a month and you think, I'm better than they are. Look at what I have to put myself through. You know, every one of us will find ourselves somewhere in this story. Every one of us. Because every one of us has at one time or another have found ourselves guilty of attitudes 
attitudes and misconceptions, but really attitudes that God really does detest. An attitude that either draws us closer to God or away from him. And so the parable, the story begins. Verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray. Sounds like a very good spiritual activity to participate in. One is a Pharisee and the other is a tax collector. One temple, two men, two stories, two prayers. The setting is the temple courts. As you think about the temple in the time in Jesus' day, that was a place of worship, the place where people would come to meet with God. And in that place, two men come, two very different purposes, two very different prayers with two very different results. Verse 11, the Pharisee, standing by himself, the text says, or I like the way the NIV translates it because it's a more accurate translation. It says, prayed about himself, okay? And he prayed this way. God, thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now, as we listen to this prayer, as I read this prayer, If you were standing there that day, listening to this Pharisee pray this prayer, there's something that simply disturbs us about that prayer. If he had come to you or come to me and and said, how can I improve on on the way in which I pray? I think we would have some advice for him. I'm guessing that what he said was true. I I mean, think about it. Um, I'm guessing that he wasn't an extortioner. I'm guessing that he treated people fairly. Um... I'm guessing he wasn't an adulterer, um, and he didn't cheat on his taxes, I'm guessing. He was an upright, righteous, moral individual. But there is something about his prayer that just doesn't feel right. And we don't like the way that he's praying. And don't think that he should be praying that way. Are you with me on that? There's just something there that doesn't set right. And the reason we shouldn't like that prayer is because it is simply a recital. It's a narrative of his virtues, of his moral superiority for his own self-satisfaction. And what he does is he stands in the presence of God and possibly in the earshot of of other people. And and it's really religious self-glorification. It's not fellowship or communion with God at all. His gratitude to God was nil, wasn't there. His gratitude to God, if you can call it that, was for his self-achieved virtues. Not for God's mercy. It wasn't for God's grace on his life, which may have allowed him to, to commit to living such a disciplined, self-controlled life. And certainly the religious leaders of Jesus' day, the Pharisees, did live a disciplined, self-controlled religious life. You see, his measurement for righteousness, godliness, and goodness was others. This tax collector. And you see, friends, in our own spiritual insanity, and that's what it really is, we sometimes believe that if we can discover or list other people's vices, sins, and shortcomings to compare to our virtues, 
we can make ourselves feel better about ourselves and don't really need to think about needing to change anything in our lives. And you see, that's an attitude of heart that God rejects. Not only does this Pharisee's prayer list his moral superiority, which there were some good aspects to it, but now he begins to list his religious accomplishments. Not only his moral superiority, but now all of his religious accomplishments, which they're really excellent. I I mean, look at here. I I mean, they really are very impressive. Look at verse 12. He says, I fast twice a week. Now, the Old Testament only required a Jew to fast once a year on the Day of Atonement. But this man then fasted, what's the math? 103 times a year. Amazing. Far more than what was required. He not only did what was required, but he far exceeded what was required in his religious activity. And then he goes on and he says, I give tithes of all that I get. All that I get. You see, he tithed not only on his paycheck, but also on his side jobs. He tithed on his dividends, his bonus checks, interest on his savings account, and even possibly the proceeds from his garage sale, if they had garage sales back there. Amazing. The Pharisee looked good. The Pharisee acted good. All on the outside. And he was so proud of it. But the reality was, This man, unfortunately, was dead on the inside. He had a lot of religion, had a lot of great moral virtues, but not a life-giving relationship with with God. He got the praise of others, but not the affirmation of God. His worship, if you want to call it that, was all horizontal. There was nothing vertical about his worship. It was all horizontal. It was all about himself in comparison to other people and how good he looked in comparison to others. C.S. Lewis said that a, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you can't see something that's above you. He wasn't able to see his God because he was so focused on looking at all of his virtues, all of his spirituality, so to speak, all of his religious accomplishments, and they were all done in comparison to other people. And we could always find somebody else who is worse off than us spiritually, and that will make us feel better about ourselves. You see, the Pharisees' attitude of arrogance and pride and self-righteousness and moral and religious superiority, it's, it's really, it's, it's like a poison, like carbon monoxide, it's often unrecognized and if left unchecked becomes very deadly and will destroy you. So how do we know? And how can we recognize when we are trusting in our own spiritual virtues and self-righteousness and filled with pride? Six ways. Six ways. First, when we talk more about our own accomplishments than God's work, when we talk more about our own accomplishments than God's work. I'm sure we could all think about folks that we at times have been around or been with, that when we sit with them or we talk with them, the only thing we hear from them is about all the things that they've accomplished, all the things that they have done, all the meals that they have delivered to people, all the hospital visits that they've made, all the things that they have done in order to just 
lift themselves up. And I'm not saying that there's anything bad in and of in any of those things. But when we talk more about our own accomplishments than what God's doing, we may be in a place of concern as it relates to our own self-righteousness. Second, when we believe our actions gain us God's favor. When we believe that our actions gain us God's favor. When we believe that if I do these six spiritual things, if I do these six disciplined religious activities, then that's going to grant me greater favor with God. When we believe our actions gain us favor with God. Number three, when we compare our life to others and not to God's standard of holiness. When we compare our lives to others and not to God's standard of holiness. Number four, when we refuse to acknowledge our own sinfulness and brokenness. In that Pharisee's prayer, there was nothing about his shortcomings, his, his faults, his struggles, his difficulties. It was all about all the great things that he was able to do and accomplish. There was nothing in his prayer about his own sinfulness and brokenness. So when we refuse to acknowledge our own sinfulness and brokenness. Number five, when we have contempt for other people. When we have contempt for other people. When we look at other people and go, how pathetic, how sad. They shouldn't be like that. Look at me. And then number six, when we have an over-inflated view of ourselves. When we have an over-inflated view of ourselves. You know, the reality is, all of us, including myself, have at times had attitudes like this, and we have felt like, yeah, okay, I'm better than somebody else. I'm glad that's not me. But you see, that was the Pharisee. That was his attitude of religious superiority, and that was an attitude that God rejects. Pride, that's the attitude of heart that God does not accept and rejects. Now looks, let's look at the attitude of heart that God accepts, and that's Repentance. The attitude of heart that God accepts, repentance. Notice verses 13 and 14. Another way in which we could say this, or, or how should we approach God to experience genuine life change? How to, how to approach God? Because I think we all want to experience life change, and I think we'll see it here in the prayer of this tax collector. And it's with this heart of repentance. Now, the prayer of the tax collector is very different than the Pharisee. I mean, notice what Jesus says, first of all, in verse 13. He says, but, okay, transitional time is taking place here, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, what? A sinner. A sinner. The tax collector doesn't even feel worthy because of his own sin to approach the place of worship and the presence of God. The text says that he was standing far off, unlike the Pharisee who saw himself standing in a very prominent place. And this tax collector was probably in the court of the Gentiles, not able to or not desiring to approach and be in the same area as this Pharisee. You see, he wasn't interested in letting other people see him pray, unlike the Pharisee. He wasn't interested in being seen by others. He was only interested in approaching God humbly, Repentantly 
and in so doing felt deeply undeserving. The text uh, says that he would not even lift his eyes to heaven. He felt too unworthy, too ashamed to look up. And then in a further act of repentance and humility, the tax collector, it says, beat his chest. An indication of, of genuine, heartfelt, sincere repentance. You see, the person who approaches and stands in the presence of God is always more aware of his sin in need of God's mercy and grace and forgiveness more than the successes of one's life. I mean, that's what Isaiah the prophet experienced in Isaiah chapter 6. As Isaiah wrote, it, he said, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And his response to being in the presence of God was, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see, the person who lives in the presence of God and walks with the Lord is always more aware of his shortcomings, his sin and need for forgiveness than his virtues and constantly cries out for the mercy, the grace, and the forgiveness of God. That's what David experienced and felt in Psalm 51 as he reflects back on his sin of adultery and murder in Psalm 51 where he says, it's the sacrifices of God They are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God. He says, you will not despise or reject. What a humble way in which to approach the God of the universe. But as I said, sometimes in our own spiritual insanity, we think we can approach God listing all of our virtues and all of our accomplishments where the reality is, When we compare ourselves to the God of the universe and his holiness and his son, Jesus Christ, wow, we have nothing to bring to the table. Notice also this tax collector's prayer as he cries out and simply says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. What I love about that prayer is it's not God, You know, life has been hard. There have been some challenges there. People have been picking on me. And, um, you know, I had a reason to be upset and angry with them. Um, But, Lord, please forgive me. He comes without excuse. Without excuse. Just simply, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You know, there have been times in my own life, as I'm sure in yours, when we have come to God, when we've recognized that we've done something, we've crossed the line, we've sinned, we've violated God's standard of holiness, and we come and we try to give excuses as to why we did what we did. And that's not an excuse. We just need to simply say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You see, this man recognized that he was separated from God because of his sin. He was grieved over his own sinful condition and he begged for mercy to escape the judgment that his sin deserved. The Pharisee didn't believe that he was that bad of a person because of all of his good works. And there were many that he could account for, but he didn't feel like he really needed anything from God. You see, when we are focused upon all of our good deeds, when we are about listing for others all of our accomplishments, all of our great acts of 
compassion, we're really worshiping ourselves. And when we do that, we won't see our own shortcomings or need for forgiveness of a Savior. The reality is God says in Romans 3.23 that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All includes all. It includes everyone and ex excludes no one. And it, you know what? In God's economy of things, Isaiah 64.6, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be about doing good things, but what's the motivation behind doing those things? Is it for God's glory? Is it to make his name famous? Or is it to make us feel better about ourselves and also make us look better in the eyes of others? Now, interesting, if Jesus had stopped here with the story, right at this point, it would have been tempting to think the Pharisee was a rather upstanding believer in that day. A bit proud, conceited, self-absorbed, yes, but, you know, the kind of person or a variation of that, that that God might want us all to be. And the tax collector, if we stood there that day after hearing his prayer, we might have thought, yeah, you know, kind of pitiful, kind of sad. And we may have wondered if God was really listening to such a pathetic prayer. But as the story continues... This isn't how the story ends. You see, Jesus is about to expose the hearts of these two men by God's declaration over them. Notice verse 14. It says, I tell you this, this man went down to his house. How? What's it say? Justified. He went down to his house justified. Rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I think as the crowd stood there that day listening to Jesus, they were stunned. They were taken back by what Jesus just said here. I mean, the Pharisee, this self-righteous performer, he went home that day perhaps feeling a bit smug over his performance and, and proud of himself. He longed for and wanted the affirmation of others and possibly got it, but, but that's all he got that day. Nothing more. The tax collector... On the other hand, he didn't receive any applause, didn't receive any affirmation from others, but Jesus said this of him, he was made right, justified before God, the tax collector, because of his hard attitude of humble repentance and surrender before God, he went home justified. He went home different than when he came that day to the temple. He was justified. And so, so what is justification and, and how does it happen? Well, quickly, justification, it's, it's a legal term whereby we are declared by God and treated as righteous and holy even though we are not practically. And how does it happen? Well, Romans 10, 9 and 10, it says this, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved for. With the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Justification. Declared righteous because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. You know, you may have heard us talk around here, it's, 
It's not hard. It's as simple as the ABCs to experience a, a, a saving of one's soul, be, being justified, being declared righteous, being born again. It's where you admit because of your sin that you are separated from God, Romans 3.23. We talk about the ABCs. You admit that you are separated from God. Or you believe in what Jesus Christ said and did when he walked on this earth. And we have people who, who will admit that they have done a number of things wrong in this world, a number of things that God probably is not pleased with or, or happy with. And those same people, many of those will say, you know what, I do believe in this historical Jesus and I understand that he died on a cross and, you know, I think he may have even been raised from the dead on that third day. But that doesn't save you. It's confess. It's you confess Jesus Christ as your Savior. What you do is you surrender your will to his, to follow his lead in your life. Or as Ephesians chapter 2, 8, 9 talks, that we are saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's the gift of God so that no one can boast. We are saved by grace. What is grace? Getting what you don't deserve. Forgiveness of sins, the hope of heaven, eternal life. We're saved by grace. How? Through faith. What do you mean through faith? When you understand that you put your faith and trust in the completed work of Jesus Christ and everything that he did and everything that he said, you put your absolute trust and faith in him. Well, what is faith? Well, faith is a man who was accused of a very serious crime. He didn't commit the crime, but he's accused of the crime. And as he was getting ready to go to court, he said, I would have liked to have been able to plead my case before the judge and the jury myself because I know I am innocent. But he knew that he couldn't do that. He didn't have the skill to do it, didn't have the capacity to do that. And so what he had to do is he had to entrust himself into the hands of a lawyer who could plead his case. And because he entrusted himself into the hands of this skilled lawyer to plead his case, he was found innocent. He put his faith and trust in the skill of the one who could accomplish what he himself could not accomplish. There was a man who was diagnosed with cancer, and it was a tumor on his throat. And he said that, I wish that I could have just simply reached down into my throat and, and pulled the tumor out with my bare hands because I was so angry about it all. And he said, but I couldn't do that. He said, I had to entrust myself into the hands of a surgeon who was skilled to do something that I could not do. And as a result of that, as a result of him placing his confidence, his trust, his entire life into the hands of the surgeon, the tumor was removed. And the man's life was spared. When I was in seminary, it was coming up to the last semester of seminary and um, didn't have the cash to pay for the final semester. And so as my dad was uh, talking with me and he said, how are things going, Kent? And I said, things are going well, just with the exception by the way, um, don't have the cash to be able to finish the last semester of seminary. And so my dad said, Kent, um, go ahead. Um, I'll send a check to the school, and don't you worry about it. So I hung up the phone, and I went down to the dean's office, and I signed up for my classes with the absolute confidence that my dad was going to do what he said he was going to do. And the check was there within the next couple of days. If you know what it's like to entrust your life into the hands of somebody who's going to plead your case because you can't, if you know what it's like to trust and, in, and put your faith and confidence in a surgeon to do something that you are not capable of doing, 
If you know what it is like to trust in the word of your father and know that he's going to be good on his word, you know what it's like to put your faith in the person of Jesus Christ and everything that he has said and done. That's confessing him. That we are saved by grace, through faith. It's not of ourselves. Why? So that none of us can boast. Because if we could earn our way into God's favor, if we could earn our way into God's heaven, then that puts God in this position of becoming a debtor to us. Because if you work for 40 hours, your employer owes you something, don't they? Absolutely. So that's not a gift. A gift is given whether you deserve it or not. So you may be here this morning wondering about what all of this means, about what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You admit that you are separated because of your sin. You believe in what Jesus Christ said and did when he walked this earth, and then you confess him as your Savior. You surrender your life, your will to his, and you follow his lead in your life. That's what it means to be justified, as God then declares over you what he's accomplishing in you. Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work in you, that point of salvation, that point of time that God says, because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, that he paid a price that he did not owe because we owed a price that we could never pay, God says you're justified when you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It says, he who began that good work in you will do what? He will bring it about to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He's working his will in us to accomplish things for his glory. You know, I realized as I was studying this passage this last week that there's only one thing worse than being a sinner separated from God. And that's being a sinner separated from God and not admitting to it. You know, there aren't many days that go by when I'm not in a place and aware of my own shortcomings, my own ungodly attitudes, and sin and in the need of God's grace and forgiveness daily. There's never a time that I will outgrow or we will outgrow our need for God. I've at times been like that Pharisee that we looked at this morning. I've looked at others and in their situation and have thought and, and I've believed, you know, if that were me, I would never act or be like that. And this last week has been one of those weeks that God has ripped open my heart because of my attitude of pride and has shown me just how much pharisaical poison there was flowing through my veins. And he had to do a major work in my life. Becky's mom, my mother-in-law, Geneva, she's 91 years old, and we needed to put her into a nursing home because we were unable to care for her physically with, with what she needed. She'd lived with us for a couple of weeks as we tried to care for her the very best that we could, um, but it got to a point where we just were not able to care for her anymore and provide for her what she needed. And uh, we're at that stage of life where the cycle has sort of come back around where we're now having to care for a parent in a way that they cared for us when they brought us into this world. And the reality is she didn't want to be there. She doesn't want to be there. Um, she hasn't liked it. She's acted in ways toward others that has surprised me. 
and I'm disappointed, not in her, disappointed in me, deeply convicted by God because of my attitude towards my mother-in-law, as I thought, come on, I'd never act like that. I wouldn't be like that. I don't know. I'm 60, 91. A lot can change between that span of time there. I don't know how I'm going to act when I'm 91. I mean, she's reached a, a, a tough point, and we've reached a tough point too. In the midst of that, I've had to seek God's forgiveness. I've had to seek his mercy for the ways that I've thought. And so the reality is, I've had some pharisaical poison running through my veins. I'm dealing with it. I'm asking for God's forgiveness and his grace and mercy as Becky and I walk through this. And you know what? We will do our best to honor her, to care for her, and to watch over her until such time that God calls her home. That's a place that God wants us to be in, humbly surrendering our wills to him, particularly when it comes to parents, to honor your parents. And so my question here is, how will you be leaving here today? Like the Pharisee? Or the tax collector? You know, I can almost hear the tax collector's prayer a year later. And here is his prayer. Dear God, thank you for your grace and your mercy, which I still need today as I did a year ago. I've come a long way because of your grace and mercy and forgiveness, but I still have a long way to go. Lord, I need you every hour I need you, because without you, I would fall apart. So how will you be leaving here today? What is God asking you to do? How is he asking you to to change? What do you need to surrender to him? What do you need to confess? Because my prayer, my hope is that you will walk away this morning not like that Pharisee who went away feeling great about his religious activities and accomplishments, but that we would walk away this morning like that tax collector who simply said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Let's pray.